RBCC. I hope, <laughs> I hope you uh, enjoyed the rain last night as much as I did. Wasn't that great? Thunder, lightning, the whole thing. Wow, that was amazing. Well, for some of you who um, were expecting uh, Pastor Brian this morning, uh, sorry to disappoint you. Um, you know, so you're going to have to adjust your vision line again, right? I mean, you know, Pastor Brian's up here, I'm way down here, so focus in and uh, we'll be fine. I want to, um, maybe you, some of you don't know me, I'm Gary Miller. Uh, I'm an elder here uh, at the church, and uh, it's an honor to be able to share God's Word with you this morning. So make sure your Bibles or your holy hand phones or whatever electronic device you use is open to Acts chapter 16. And I'm really grateful for uh, Kelly and for Paula uh, reading the passage for us today. The facts of this story are really very clear. Uh, Paul and Silas were called by God to go to Macedonia. You might remember from last week, uh, Pastor Brian talking about the fact that they attempted to go to a couple of other places, but the Spirit said you can't do that. But in a vision, uh, they were directed by God to go to Macedonia. They landed in a city of Macedonia called Philippi. Uh, it was a very important Roman colony, and it, it has just been a blessing for me to be able to actually have been in Philippi, uh, walk the streets. Uh, one of the original streets that uh, was there when Paul was there uh, remains, and um, it's, just, it, it's just a great place to be able to see the Scriptures come alive. But we learned from the reading today that through a series of events, they ended up, Paul and Silas, falsely accused. They were stripped, beaten, and thrown into the inner prison. They could have been discouraged and distraught. I think that would be the first thing that came to my mind. But instead, they prayed and they sang songs to God. Most of us probably wouldn't have taken that attitude. And even when an earthquake seemed to be the answer to their problem, what happened? They remained in their cell. So what can we possibly learn from this uh, sacred scenario? It's been preserved for us for all of these years. God must have something for us. Well, the first thing that I think we can learn is that the gospel is for everyone. Let's do this by reviewing the actors in this event. You see, some of the people who responded to the gospel were rich. Uh, of course, that would include Lydia and her entire household. But we recognize that her riches had not brought her to salvation. From our reading today, we learned that Lydia was indeed a woman of faith, but she had not yet learned about Jesus. Well, we're told here in the scriptures that the Lord opened her heart to respond to the gospel message. And when she heard the message of salvation through faith in Jesus, the Lord knew that she was ready. But remember, her status and her wealth couldn't save her. Only Jesus could do that. But some of the people in our story were poor. Uh, think about the jailer. Now, uh, Roman soldiers weren't particularly well off. They uh, were tied to their jobs. Many of them were conscripted into service. 
And we understand this jailer had a family, but it didn't change his social position. He was poor. And yet he, just like Lydia, was in need of salvation. In fact, he specifically asked about that in verse 10. He was ready to kill himself when he thought that the prisoners had escaped. And we see another example of that. We learned about it a few weeks ago. I'd like you to turn back a couple of pages to Acts chapter 12. You may remember the story uh, from uh, Pastor Brian's sermon about this, where at one moment Peter was uh, chained between two soldiers, and an angel came in the night and released him from his chains and took him out and reunited him uh, with the other believers. Now, following that release, something happened, and it shows up in verse 18. So chapter 12, verse 18. It says, Now when the day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become with Peter. And when Herod had searched for him and had not found him, here's what he did. Herod examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. So following Peter's miraculous um, release from prison, the uh, guards were put to death. But in Paul's situation, when the guard learned that the prisoners were still there, he ended up asking the most important question in all of history. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You see, his poor station in life didn't matter to God. He needed salvation, just like Lydia did. But we also can learn from this passage that the gospel spans all class structures. The gospel was for the Jews, like Paul and Silas. It was for the Gentiles, like Lydia and the jailer. It was even for a slave girl who had no power. And for the jailer who held Paul and Silas in prison. And that power was given to him by the most um, a strong power in all of the world. It's a bit ironic when you think about it, isn't it? That the jailer seemed to be the person with all of the power. I mean, think about it. He had the keys. It was his prison. He had the authority from Rome. But the jailer was not free. And that was evidenced in the fact that when he thought the prisoners had escaped, what did he do? He, he said, oh man, I'm going to kill myself rather than face the indignity, the shame, and the punishment knowing that his prisoners had escaped. Now, let's contrast this with Paul and Silas. You see, they had absolutely no power, no power at all. I mean, they'd been stripped and beaten, thrown into prison, and they were in prison in these stocks. The stocks were a long board that was uh, sawed in two, and they would place the prisoners' legs in them in a wide angle so that they would uh, cramp. Their legs would cramp up at night. Yet Luke clarifies for us that, what, Paul and Silas were the ones who were truly free. They may be in stocks in the inner prison, but their hearts were filled with what? Prayer. And songs. They didn't even run when the earthquake hit. 
I mean, they remained in the prison by choice. You see, Paul and Silas are the ones who were truly free. So what do we learn from this? Well, we learn that the gospel is no respecter of persons. Peter himself had to come to this conclusion. And if you'll just turn another page or two back to Acts chapter 10, we read what happens here. Peter comes to the realization that the gospel was for the Gentiles, not just for the Jews. And here's what he wrote in verses 34 and 35. Acts 10, 34 and 35. And opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. You see, in God's eyes, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, powerful or a slave, religious or an atheist. And Paul himself knew this, and he wrote about it later in the book of Galatians, where he said these words. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, neither is there male or female, for you are what? You are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, so the good news is that the gospel is for everyone. And it's only by embracing this gospel message that you can find complete freedom. And Jesus himself spoke about that. We remember his words where he said in John 8, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. You see, Jesus is the truth and only he can set you free. But another thing that we learn from this story in Acts chapter 16 is that, you know, things might get a little rough. Now, I think it's pretty obvious to most of us that we are living in some very difficult times. Now, I want to go on record as saying I'm not a doomsayer, and actually I'm not even a pessimist, but all around us, things are happening that seem to place people of faith in really difficult positions. Even in the past few weeks and months, unusual actions have been taken against some Christians who boldly stand for their faith. Just think about how different the rhetoric has been in the media regarding those who stand against abortion. In some circles, those who care for the life of the unborn have been harassed, threatened, they've been firebombed, and some of them have even been arrested. Now, I have to admit, I don't have all the facts in each of these cases, but it does seem clear to me that taking a biblical stand for life has come under serious attack since the overturn of Roe versus Wade. But I do have a specific example that I want you to hear about today. You see, other Christians also feel the sting of standing for their faith. And this example this morning that I want to give to you, to you is about a firefighter from Atlanta named Kelvin Cochran. Mr. Cochran is a 30-year veteran fighting fires and protecting the lives in the communities where he lived, mostly in the state of Georgia. His exemplary service eventually led him to become the fire chief for the entire city of Atlanta 
And as you know, that's a big metropolitan area. His significant record also attracted the attention of then President Obama. And he appointed Mr. Cochran as the US Fire Administrator. And from what I understand, that is the highest office in his profession. But Atlanta loved this guy so much, they desperately wanted him back. So Kelvin went back to Atlanta and became the fire chief once again in 2010. But you should also know something about Kelvin. He is a member and a deacon at Elizabeth Baptist Church in Atlanta. And there he teaches a men's Bible study. And through his teaching, he wrote a book. And in his book, he addressed the biblical position on marriage being between a man and a woman. Well, you can probably imagine this didn't set very well with some of the officials in the city of Atlanta. And they got so angry at Kelvin for publishing this book that they initially suspended him from his job as fire chief, and later they fired him. This all happened because Kelvin Cochran was bold enough to stand on the truths of the Word of God. But I have to tell you, I believe that the Bible makes it really clear that we shouldn't be surprised when this happens. Jesus said these words in John 15, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. And a little bit later he said these words, If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. You see, God doesn't give Christians an exemption even when they're doing his will and even when they're pursuing his kingdom and acting righteously. Now, we see this clearly from the story of Paul and Silas. I mean, what were they doing? They were praying in Acts 16, 16. Uh, they were caring for a slave girl. They were talking to people about Jesus. That was their crime. So what happened? Well, an angry mob picked them up, took them before the civil judges, and falsely accused them of what? Of sedition. Shortly after being accused, we see that Paul and Silas were stripped, beaten, and thrown into prison. They were actually abused for doing what God had called them to do. And that was just simply preach the gospel. Now, we're not told from the scripture whether Paul and Silas were able to say anything during that mob-filled scene, and uh, perhaps they didn't even have a chance. We only read of the false accusations, the beatings, the injustice that they endured. However, we are informed of the attitude the attitude that they took towards what had happened to them. Now take a look in Acts 16.25. Look at the language there. It says this, But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, at the darkest time of the night, in the darkest part of the prison, Paul and Silas are having a praise and worship time. And not only that, the other prisoners were listening. They must have sang very loudly. 
Now that must have been quite a moment. Under normal circumstances in a prison like that, you might have heard moaning and groaning and crying, pain being exhibited. Why? Because they had wounds on their back and their legs were cramping up. But not from Paul and Silas. They were praying out loud. They were singing hymns out loud. They were praising God. So the real question for us is, how in the world does that happen? I mean, are these guys super saints or what? You know, what, what led these men who are in pain? Maybe even, maybe even fearing for their lives. What caused them to actually sing praises in the midst of their suffering? Well, I believe that Paul and Silas were responding to their situation from lives that were fully committed to honoring God no matter the circumstances. Their singing was not based on a happy outcome. It was based on their knowledge of a good and sovereign God. Paul actually uh, wrote this to the Philippians. You remember he wrote a letter back to the church at Philippi later, and he says these words, For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. You must remember that, that that's, a, that's an amazing statement for Paul to make. If, if you read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it, it gives the litany of all of the sufferings that Paul went through. I mean, shipwrecks and beatings and being stoned. I mean, it's just amazing. And yet, he could write about a life that was filled with all of these negative things and tell us what it actually meant. And he wrote about that in Romans 5. Now, you don't need to turn there because I've got it up here. And not only this, this is Paul writing, but we also exalt, that means glory. We also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance brings about proven character, and proven character brings about hope, and hope doesn't disappoint. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So I wondered, was this just a one-off? You know, was this stuff with Paul and Silas just something that happened to just them? And I began wondering if there were other biblical examples of this happening, and I landed on the guy called Joseph. Now, you can read about most of his life story in uh, about the last 15 chapters in the book of Genesis. You know, it really is not a pretty story. I mean, he was hated by his brothers. Those wonderful, loving brothers sold him into slavery. He was falsely accused of what? Attempted rape by his boss's wife. He was thrown into prison and then he was forgotten there. And not just forgotten, he was forgotten for years. But in spite of all of these dire situations in Joseph's life, we read these words. The Lord was with Joseph. You see, Jesus se or I'm sorry, Joseph seemed to uh, overcome this horrible circumstances through what? A lifestyle that honored God. Now, think about this. In each instance in his life, he kind of climbed the ladder of success only to be thrown again into another pit. And yet we never read 
that he despaired. We never read that Joseph got bitter. He simply kept serving God every day, being faithful, trusting God that whatever happened to him was best according to God. So Joseph, like Paul and Silas, lived in submission to what? God's leading and trusting in his grace, even when times were tough. I, I think from this lesson, maybe God is trying to teach us, he's trying to teach us that tough times are coming. And how in the world are we going to act when those difficult times hit us? You see, we need to begin practicing today, today, a grace-filled lifestyle that will withstand the challenges that may come our way. For soon, who knows? We may find ourselves in a very difficult situation. And I wonder, will we react like Paul and Silas? That certainly is my prayer. But another thing that we can learn from this story is some basic principles about reaching other peoples with the gospel. It's really a story of evangelism and ways of reaching people who are in need of Jesus. God has preserved this example for us in what? He's provided us with some ways that we can use. The first way, I call it meet them where they are. Notice that when Paul and Silas entered Philippi, what did they do? On the Sabbath, they went outside the gates to a riverside where they're supposing that they would enter a place of prayer. Now, I've actually been there. This river is just across the street from a road, excuse me, where uh, the city of Philippi stands today. When they arrived at the river, what did they do? Well, they found some women who had assembled there, and they had a conversation with those women. Now, we understand that normally when Paul would go into a city, he would look for a synagogue, right? And on the Sabbath, he would go into the synagogue, listen to the teaching, and maybe even get an opportunity to speak himself. But that wasn't the case in Philippi because there was no synagogue. And the reason that there was no synagogue is it took 10 uh, pr religiously practicing Jewish men in order for a synagogue to be held. So there was no synagogue in the city of Philippi. But there were people who worshiped God. Paul and Silas went there, where they were. He met the people right where they were, down by the river. And what did he do? He talked to them about Jesus. And the Lord moved in the heart of Lydia so that she positively responded to Paul's message. Now, I understand, we're not all called to go to foreign lands. If that would happen, this room would be empty right now. So we know that that's not the truth. But we are all called to tell others about Jesus. Uh, today, we often call this your personal mission field. And I would encourage you to be faithful to sharing the good news of Jesus with those around you. People like family members, neighbors, fellow workers, people within your sphere of influence. Just meet them where they are. 
You don't have to wait for reach month. I mean, you know, September's over. Whew, don't have to do that again for a while. No, 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 we don't have to wait for that. Look for and create opportunities to share Jesus. Secondly, we learn another valuable lesson about witnessing here when we look at the interplay between the witness and the divine. Now, you remember that Jesus, in his uh, great commission, said that we were to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And that's very consistent with our mission statement here at CVCC, where we are to be and to make disciples of Christ. But we also must realize, and some of that comes from this story, that we're only participants in the salvation experience with the Holy Spirit. Acts 16, 14 reminds us of that. Take a look at that. It was read to us this morning. It says, And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So when Lydia heard the word, it was the Lord himself who opened her heart to respond. You see, God was the ultimate evangelist. Jesus himself spoke about that in John chapter 6 when he said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then later on, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. So I, I wondered, you know, how does that all work? Well, I have to admit with a confession. Through my many years of sharing the gospel with other people, I have to admit that sometimes I get a little frustrated. You see, in my sharing the gospel, I've attempted to be very clear. I try to note that we're all sinners, how the free gift of everlasting life is found in Christ Jesus, and if a person calls upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. Now, many of you are familiar with that. We call it the Romans Road, mostly because all of those verses that relate to that are found in the book of Romans. But even when presented with a clear message, we all know this, those of us who have shared the gospel, some people delay a decision and some people deny. And I have to admit, that's what frustrates me. But you see, this story reminds us that sometimes we plant a seed. Sometimes we water that seed, but it is God who is the one who gives the increase. That comes from 1 Corinthians. You see, so it is God, God is the one who moves the person's heart to come to the realization that they even have a need for a Savior. And that reality actually removes a burden from my heart. I'm commanded to share the good news, but it is God who does the actual saving. Jesus actually spoke of this in John 16. You don't need to turn there. We have it here again. He says, Jesus said, but I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. He's talking about his death. For if I do not go away, the helper. Well, who's the helper? Well, it's the Holy Spirit. That's right. The Holy Spirit will not come to you. 
But if I go, I will send him, the Holy Spirit, to you. And he, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You see, the Holy Spirit has been uniquely tasked with touching hearts when they hear the gospel. And he is the one who brings conviction and repentance. So just as the Lord moved in the heart of Lydia to believe, he will also move in others' hearts when the time is right. If we do our part, I firmly believe God will do his part. Now, thirdly, I need to clarify something about this passage that has uh, come up to me before. I call it household salvation. You see, in, in the story, we learn that both Lydia and the jailer's families came to a saving faith in Christ shortly after they did. Now, I want to go on record as saying this is not a mass conversion experience, but rather... It's an opportunity for an entire family or an entire household to hear the gospel and respond individually. You know, when I was younger in, in a church, I can remember this happening several times. I would remember when um, either a husband or a wife would come to faith in Christ Jesus. They would go back home and maybe a week, maybe a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months later, we would see their spouse or other members of their household also coming to Jesus and accepting him as their personal savior. What is not happening here is salvation by group. Nowhere in Scripture do we find that. As a matter of fact, in Scripture, what do we find? We find that Jesus is our personal Savior. And each person, each one of us, must choose for themselves. However, we are taught that the testimony can positively influence other people, especially those in our household and our witness for the gospel. So I want you to see a really good example of this. I'll keep a marker here in Acts 16 and uh, turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. Now, you'd have to go towards the very end of the Bible, if you're not familiar with that. Uh, this is Peter writing, 1 Peter, and we're going to go to uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, chapter 3 and verse 1. Peter here is uh, giving some instruction about godly living. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Peter writes, in the same way, you wives... Be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them, that's the husbands, are disobedient to the word, that means they don't know Christ, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. You see, the cascading influence of a godly testimony can become, can become contagious in the lives of other people. As salvation is instilled in the heart of one member, several others of a family may also come to the same realization. Again, maybe that's happened in your family. I just believe that's a beautiful picture of something I call the power of contagious saving faith. Now lastly, 
I want to bring up another point about this witnessing, and it's about protecting the future church at Philippi. Uh, we're back in Acts 16 now, and um, looking somewhat at verses 35 through 39. There's a final sequence of events here. You see, Paul and Silas were uh, sent back into the prison, and when the magistrates uh, sent police there, they, they said, okay, you can go. They wouldn't do it. Why would they be so adamant regarding their Roman citizenship? I mean, how did this make any difference? Well, let me unpack this for us. You see, Paul must have known that he and Silas would soon leave this city of Philippi. And we see that actually happening in verse 40. But they were leaving behind a growing church. And in all probability, they left behind Luke, how do we know that? Well, turn back a page, and let's look at um, Acts 16, verses 8 and 10. Just take a glance at that right there. We have to remember that the author of this narrative is Luke. And in verse 8, he uses the pronoun they to include Paul and Silas. Let's, let me read it for you here. It says, And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. So he's writing about Paul and Silas. But in verse 10, he changes things around. Look at that. And when he had seen the vision, that's Paul, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. So you see what's happening here? Uh, Luke now joins them, and he's the one who goes with them into Macedonia, arriving at the uh, city of Philippi. We see this again in verses 11 and 12. So Luke uses the pronoun they four times in verses 6 through 8, but seven times he uses we or us in verses 10 through 13. Uh, why is that important? Well, Luke is being left behind because in verse 40, let me turn there, the very last verse in this chapter, it says, and they went out of the prison. Well, of course, that's Paul and Silas. And entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. You see, Paul and Silas were leaving Luke behind. And he wanted to be able to have Luke teach the people in Philippi and establish the church. Now, we can understand why it was so important for Paul to demand an apology from the magistrates. You see, he was trying to protect the people who had accepted Christ from further retribution like he felt when they left the city. In fact, we see this as kind of a theme in the letter that Paul writes to the church at Philippi a couple of years later. When he writes to them, he's in prison. And so he knows what he's talking about. And what he writes to them about are the people in Philippi, about opponents. And in verse uh, 29 in chapter 1, he, he talks about suffering for Christ's sake. You see, Paul knew that difficult days were ahead for those people. And he wanted to protect them as much as he could. So how did he do it? He reminded the officials as he was going out the door that Romans were to be treated with respect, 
under certain laws and rights, that even though these people were now believers, their citizenship as Romans should provide some basic protection from false accusations and imprisonments, much like he and Silas had suffered. Now, as I conclude my message, I, I, I want to ponder two quick thoughts. First of all, let's look at the earthquake and what was happening there. Luke tells us that when that earthquake happened, it shook the very foundations of the uh, prison. And immediately, all of the doors were open and everyone's chains were unfastened. Think about that. This was the moment of escape for Paul and Silas. I mean, they could have seen this as a miracle from God. What? Setting them free from their bonds. They may have heard the story about Peter. But they didn't leave. In fact, the text kind of infers that Paul told the other prisoners to stay put because no one left the prison. Why didn't they run for their lives? Seems like something I would do. Well, it seems clear that the earthquake came to save the jailer, not the prisoners. His life was more important to Paul and Silas than their own personal freedom and comfort. In not escaping, they showed tremendous discernment. You see, the circumstances said escape, but love said stay for the sake of this one soul. They weren't guided merely by circumstances. They were guided by compelling love. Now, lastly, we learn a lesson of hospitality. Both Lydia and the jailer practiced hospitality toward Paul and Silas. When Jesus saved them, I think this was one of the hallmarks of transformation. Lydia actually insisted that they stay in her house and the jailer, he removed Paul and Silas from the inner part of the prison, took them into his home, washed their wounds, even gave them something to eat. For the jailer, this happened between midnight and sunrise. This was no easy thing for him to do. And yet, he practiced hospitality, showing a true faith and love that had settled on his heart even that very night. Now, perhaps you're here today and you've never heard this story before. That's possible. I want you to remember this. The gospel message is for you. Now, the Bible tells us that, behold, today is the day of salvation. And I want to encourage you, if you feel and I don't mean just as an emotion. If you feel that maybe something is tugging at your heart right now, it may be the Holy Spirit, just like what happened to Lydia. And in just a few minutes, when we're done with the end of the service, there's going to be people under our crosses here, and they'll be willing to talk with you and to pray with you and to share this good news of Jesus Christ's salvation with you. You know, you can become a member of the family of God today. And that would be a great blessing for us to be able to share that with you. But I would imagine that most of you have heard this story before, maybe many times. 
you know Jesus as your personal Savior, and you're saying, so what's in it for me? Well, I hope that you begin considering what my, might lie ahead for us. You know, I used to think that persecution and problems only existed in other countries. And I've lived in some of those countries, and I've seen people persecuted for their faith. But I have to tell you, it's here in America today. So my question is, are you preparing now to live a grace-filled life that would be filled with joy maybe when you come under persecution? And then lastly, are you sharing the love of Jesus with other people? Are you just waiting for reach month and doing that as a duty and then moving on? Or does the love of Christ really constrain you, compel you to share Jesus' love with other people? I hope that's the case. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for preserving this message here in the book of Acts. You caused Luke to write it. You uh, protected it through all of these centuries so that we could have it. And Lord, I pray that the words that were spoken today were your words and that they were clear and that those words would touch hearts in significant ways. Father God, none of us know what lies in the future, and yet we know that you hold the future, our future in your hands. And so God, I pray that we would, each of us, commit our lives, commit our time, commit our talents to serving you in ways that would bring honor and glory to the matchless name of Jesus Christ, for it's in his name we pray these things. Amen.